Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books. And this week I'm happy to say we have Austin Serrett on the show, and we will be talking about his uh, interesting book, very interesting book, really, Gruesome Spectacles, Botched Executions, and America's Death Penalty. I want to say before we start, Austin, that Austin wrote the book with a number of other people, or they helped him with it, and I want to mention them too. Catherine Bloomstein is one. Audrey Jones, Heather Richard, and Madeline Sprung Kaiser. And now, Austin, thank you for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, could you kick things off for us by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a professor of political science and law, jurisprudence, and social thought at uh, Amherst College. I currently serve as associate dean of the faculty here. And my research specialty is uh, I'm interested in the relationship between law and violence, with particular reference to the American death penalty, and uh, also interested in what I call the cultural life of law, in particular representation of law and legal processes on film and uh, television. Mm-hmm. Well, as I said in the pre-interview to you, one of the things I learned from this book, and I think that our listeners will also be interested to learn this, is that um, in prior decades, I don't know exactly, we can talk about when this changed, but the press really downplayed botched executions. But we'll come to that in a second. Tell us why uh, you wrote uh, Gruesome Spectacles, Botched Executions, and America's Death Penalty. Well, there's, there's several reasons uh, why this subject felt uh, c- quite compelling to me. One, let me start with the, the kind of world of public affairs. So m- much of the argument about capital punishment in the United States today is uh, driven, as of course it should be, by a concern uh, about the possibility, the risk of uh, executing the innocent. So much of the the debate about the death penalty and what I would say the progress that abolitionists have made in the struggle against capital punishment has been made by focusing on the fate of the innocent. And uh, I was interested in taking up a subject which to some extent has been neglected in this most recent turn in the conversation about capital punishment, namely the fate of the guilty. And so that's the, the, really the first reason I was interested in uh, what, what happens when people are executed. The second thing that, that drew me to the uh, subject is uh, the simple fact that we just didn't know how many botched executions there were in the United States prior to the 1970s. So this book covers the period from 1890 to 2010. Since uh, the 1970s, since the United States Supreme Court's rather well-known decision in Furman versus Georgia, the, uh, there's been real close study of execution, including the documentation of executions that have gone wrong. But prior to 1970, uh, there was really no knowledge about botched executions, their incidents, their kinds, uh, what happens when executions go wrong. And in a sense, I wanted to fill in that mystery. The third thing that drew me to to the book or drew me to think about writing the book was uh, an interest in the way in which the legitimacy of capital punishment in the United States is tied to certain assumptions about uh, technology. Or to put it differently, I was interested in the way in which the fate of capital punishment depends upon a certain romance of technological and scientific progress and the way in which that romance and 
technological and scientific progress plays out in stories about the the methods of execution. So those were the the really the three uh, main reasons, and I would say a subsidiary reason, the one that became really important in the uh, context of writing the book is uh, an interest in and curiosity about the way in which botched executions would be uh, represented in um, legal and popular cultural uh, discourse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, One question I had, sort of typical of a historian, is how did you find these cases? Because you have a database of all all of them, it seems like. Right. So there is a a rather well-known archive of uh, every execution that's happened in the United States, and that's called the Espy file. And um, that was compiled by someone named William Espy. And what he did was he, he identified every execution in the United States. But of course, that doesn't, his file didn't tell us which of those executions uh, were botched. So we started with the Espy file and examined every execution from 1890 to 2000 and, um, and 2010. And then what we did was we went to newspapers and looked at newspaper coverage of those uh, executions. And it's only through newspaper coverage that we were able to identify um, executions that were uh, were botched. And that suggests that that our uh, count of botched executions is probably um, probably an undercount because some botched ex- executions may not have gotten any newspaper coverage mm-hmm. uh, at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, tell us before we begin talking about uh, botched executions, wh- what counts as botched? So, a botched execution is an execution that does not go as uh, it should according to the protocol or standard operating procedure. Many states have official legal protocols which describe exactly what's supposed to happen um, in an execution how long the execution is supposed to take, how it's supposed to be conducted. And where those are not available, there's ample documentation for every method of execution of what we call standard operating procedure. So a botched execution is an execution that does not proceed as the protocol would would have required it to be uh, to proceed or does not proceed in a way that's dictated by standard operating procedure. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you an illustration of that. Okay, go so, ahead. For example, yeah. so, for example, um, uh, in a hanging, the uh, standard operating procedure is death should occur by virtue of the breaking of the neck and the severing of the spine from um, the brain. So if a hanging, uh, if during a hanging, the condemned dies, but they die by strangulation, that's a botched execution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So let's set the historical stage just a little bit. And I know from my own research that there's a great sea change in public sentiment about how executions should be conducted that occurs in the 18th and early part of the 19th century. And they move from largely public, although not entirely, to, I want to use the word private, but that's not quite right. Um, uh, hidden, I think is a better way to put it. Can you talk a little bit about that before we start talking about hanging? Sure. Um, so, first of all, let me just mention that the period of 1890 to 2010, there were five methods of execution that were used. The, 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 at the beginning of the period that we studied, hanging was the predominant mode. The others were 
The others that were used in the course of this period of time were the firing squad, uh, electrocution, the gas chamber, and uh, most recently, lethal injection. And as you move from hanging to electrocution, some states went from hanging to the gas chamber, and then ultimately in the 1980s with the growth of lethal injection, um, with, with each of these inventions of new technologies, the same, the same claims were made, uh, namely that uh, whether it was electrocution or the gas chamber, ultimately lethal injection, that this method of execution would be safe, reliable, and humane. Now, if you go back to the beginning of the 20th century, as you noted, uh, execution primarily in, that, in this instance by hanging, those were public affairs. Um, it didn't. The technology was um, pretty, you know, pretty low tech, and it was easy to assemble a crowd at a at a hanging. When the states began to use the electric chair, and states began to use the gas chamber, that really required a whole different facility. And in a sense, those um, executions really couldn't effectively be uh, couldn't effectively be public. The last public execution occurred in the United States in the 1930s, a hanging in uh, a hanging in Kentucky. And increasingly, since um, the 1980s, with the use of uh, lethal injection, the death penalty in the United States is um, semi-secret. It, they, there are witnesses, but those executions occur behind closed, you know, behind prison walls. And they've been increasingly, I would say, medicalized and, and bureaucratized. So whereas at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, execution was, in fact, supposed to be a public spectacle. By the end of the 20th century and into the 21st, uh, they're not supposed to make headlines at all. They're, they're barely supposed to be seen and, 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 and recognized. Mm-hmm. So let me ask another preliminary question since it, it, it comes up in this trajectory you talk about. Why do we think that um, executions should be uh, – well, I think the way you put it in the book is that the um, victim of the execution, the victim is what it is, uh, doesn't uh, linger. Why do we think that shouldn't occur? And um, why do we think they should be semi-private or private? Well, let me answer the first part, um, uh, the second part first, and then go back to the first part. I, I think the, the movement from public to private executions has probably been well documented by others as uh, the result of changing public sensibilities mm-hmm. uh, about the way in which, for example, death happens. So, in in let's call them ordinary deaths, uh, again, those are those are private um, they're they're highly they're highly ritualized occasions so i think those those, those change in sensibilities that um, probably began to emerge at the beginning of the 20th century and certainly accelerated quite rapidly over the course of the 20th century explain this movement from public to private um, execution as to why we care about the suffering of the condemned I think there there are two reasons. Uh, one, I would say, is a legal reason, and the other is a a political reason. So the, the legal reason is because of the commitment of the Eighth Amendment mm. to um, to avoiding cruel and unusual punishment. 
And in a sense, you could say the, the, the Eighth Amendment is really quite an extraordinary commitment in American law. If you look at the American Bill of Rights, uh, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment, those are all protections for people suspected of crimes. Uh, no unreasonable search and seizure, no compulsory self-incrimination, the guarantee of trial by jury. The Eighth Amendment is a protection not for those who are suspected of crimes, but for those who have been committed, who have been convicted, rather, of committing a crime. So the Eighth Amendment is a kind of commitment, uh, extraordinary commitment to restraint in the imposition of pain on those who the state has already determined deserve some, um, some, some punishment. So the, the desire to make sure that people don't suffer when they're executed, I think, emerges because of the command of the Eighth Amendment. As the courts have interpreted or understood that command, it's that in the context of the death penalty, the death penalty should amount to, to nothing more than the mere extinguishment of life, that the death penalty should not involve any more pain than is necessary to get someone from uh, life to death. The political reason why we care I think is that uh, the legitimacy of capital punishment depends upon the belief that the violence that we impose is a different kind, a better kind than the violence that we condemn. Uh, we don't want the execution, we don't want execution to resemble murder. We don't want execution to reenact um, the horror, the gruesomeness of the crimes which it is designed to condemn. So, in a sense, the political question is, how is it that law's violence, that the violence that law deploys is different from the violence that law opposes, other than it's violence that law itself uses? So I think for the legal reason, the Eighth Amendment, and this political reason, needing to legitimate capital punishment, that's why we care about the suffering of those we put to death. Mm -hmm. And as an empirical matter, the number of executions has, I think, been going down pretty precipitously over the long term. Is that right? You, I don't know the statistics. So um, I think we're, I think it's fair to say that we're in a period of national reconsideration of capital uh, punishment and that the, the death penalty in the United States, um, there are significant signs that the death penalty is in decline. If you go back to the late 1990s, uh, we were at, we were sentencing to death about 300 people a year. Uh, last year, that number had been cut by more than two-thirds, mm -hmm. so substantially less than 100 people were sentenced to death across the United States. If you go back to the late 1990s, at the high point, I think we executed 98 people in 1999. Um, by last year, that number had been cut in half. So we've seen precipitous drops in the number of people being sentenced to death and the number of executions. There are 32 states in the United States that have the death penalty on the books. In 2013, only 15 states actually imposed a death sentence at all. And even in states that have the death penalty, like Texas or Arizona or California, actually, if you look below the state level, you find that um, most parts of the state aren't using the death penalty at all. It's not that Texas is imposing lots of death sentences. It's Harris County is imposing lots of death sentences. It's not that in California there are lots of death sentences. It's in Los Angeles County there are lots of death sentences. So um, there are many fewer death sentences and many fewer executions than there were 15, uh, 15 years ago. 
and those those numbers have been a, a kind of a, almost uniform decline they've, they've, from the high points that I've mentioned to where we are today. Mm-hmm. And, and could you speculate for just a moment on uh, the causes of that decline? Sure, I, I think that the um, there are there are several causes. So um, one cause I mentioned at the beginning when I noted uh, like why I was motivated to write this book, and that is that um, more and more there are doubts about the reliability of the death penalty system. The reliability of the death penalty system in identifying who who are guilty and differentiating them from those who are not guilty. The reliability of the death penalty system in determining among the guilty who uh, actually deserves a, a, a death sentence. Um, this is sometimes described as the so-called CSI effect. Uh, it's the effect of DNA. DNA. More than 140 people have been exonerated from America's death rows. So I think that's probably the major driving force. A second uh, factor is the growth of realistic life without parole. So in every state now that has the, the, the death penalty on the books, there also is uh, life without parole. And uh, juries, if they have doubts, uh, you know, we've convicted this person, but maybe we'll find out later that this person really wasn't, really wasn't the one who did it. Uh, juries in that context, you know, are choosing life without parole because if errors are made and someone's in a life without parole sentence, uh, that's an error that can be um, that's an error that can be rectified, whereas in the death penalty context, um, of course they they can't be rectified. So I think those two factors, the doubts about the reliability of the the death penalty system, and the availability of life without parole, uh, I think those are the major factors that have driven down uh, death sentences and executions, and that have. Uh, if you will, put the death penalty on the ropes in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to, this is just for my own curiosity. I bet some other people want to know too. Does life without parole currently mean life without parole? So, um, if you see my question, yeah. In, in general, the answer to that question is yes. Life mm. without parole means life without parole. Wow. Um, the only the the only exception to that, and it's incredibly rare. In fact, I can't think of any offhand. Would be um, a gubernatorial. Uh, huh of gubernatorial clemency. And that's why I, I, when I refer to life without parole, I refer to what I call realistic life without yeah, parole. There you go. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in a sense, uh, for abolitionists, there's a kind of dilemma. Um, in order to get traction against the death penalty in the United States, abolitionists have had to get on the life without parole bandwagon. So if you look at the history of legislative adaption of Life without parole, you see kind of uh, somewhat unusual alliances of uh, tough on crime conservatives and uh, progressive abolitionists. That's very, it's very interesting. So let's talk a little bit about these methods of execution, and we'll go in historical order. Uh, could you speak to us a little bit about hanging? Um, what can go wrong, and what has gone wrong, and how of the nation or uh, how the courts have responded to that. Um, sure. First of all, let me say about all the technologies, um, the United States Supreme Court, if we look at the Supreme Court, has never declared a technology of execution to be per se unconstitutional. Um, they, they've never said that you can't use this particular technology of, uh, 
uh, of execution. So to start with hanging, uh, the early part of the period, the hanging wasn't a fancy procedure at all. Some states used uh, step ladders to do the hanging. Some states used um, a rather crude gallows, namely throwing a, a rope over a, a, a tree limb. And uh, as the century went on, the technologies for hanging became a little more sophisticated, namely the development of what we now um, understand to be a gallows, uh, a, a structure of steps, uh, uh, and uh, the drop through a trap door. So what can go wrong? What did go wrong with hangings? Well, several things went wrong. Uh, one I mentioned uh, earlier, instead of breaking the neck, it was quite common that people would um, would strangle. In some instances where, for example, people were dropped off a step ladder, um, uh, they didn't die, uh, and they had to be hoisted up a second time and uh, and dropped again. In a few cases, particularly gruesome cases, uh, hangings resulted in uh, uh, in decapitation. And in in all cases of hanging, the let's say the sight and sound and smells of the hanging um, were not such as to appeal to middle class uh, middle class sensibilities. So hangings were, I think, widely regarded by the beginning of the 20th century as quite gruesome um, affairs and uh, prone to some number of things going wrong. And that helped propel uh, really what happened by the end of the 19th century into the beginning of the 20th century, which was the search for more um, safe, reliable, and humane methods of execution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting you mentioned hanging because one of my, when I was young, I remember watching the film In Cold Blood. And I don't know if you remember it, but it has a hanging scene in it that is truly chilling and, and it's just very frightening. Um, I, I'm not even sure that they ever show, it's one of the two perpetrators, I can't remember which, show someone being hung. But, but it's very, very frightening. Um, and this occurs in. Well, in film representation, um, you know, you sometimes saw the preparation. Um, you sometimes actually saw the trap door <clears throat> being sprung. And uh, well, I don't remember in cold blood. You often saw the sh- saw it saw it in shadows. Well, as you say, if you're disturbed to see it in film, imagine what it would have been like to to see it in person. Right. Well, the thing I remember that uh, really shocked me as a little kid was that the person who is hung soils themselves. Yes, and, that's and true. that and that really. Uh, put me back on my heels for some reason. I, I don't know why. Um, and you mentioned decapitation. I believe this is what happened to Saddam Hussein, if I recall correctly. They didn't get the length right, and he was decapitated. Um, so were, I guess, public intellectuals or politicians critical of hanging at the time, publicly critical? Or, or, so, or was this something that happened sort of inside the mechanism of the Department of Justice or the various state um, agencies? Some, some were, but um, what 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 really happened? If you want to understand the history of the um, of the death penalty in the United States in the tw- in the twentieth century, is what would happen is you'd have a, typically legislators who would be um, offended, um, upset, troubled, uh, whether they were motivated by constituent uh, pressure or the pressure of particular groups. But you'd have legislators that would call for commissions 
to study methods of execution. And often, by the way, the movement from one technology to another was motivated by the the existence of or fear of uh, botched uh, executions. So hangings would go wrong and legislative commissions would be called for and sometimes established to investigate um, new methods of uh, new methods of execution. Um, that happened most prominently in New York, um, and the legislative commission that was established uh, called for the uh, uh, the use of death by uh, death by electrocution. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about death death by uh, electrocution. Uh, it's it's um it's notorious. Let's put it that way. Most people know that it it existed and um, think of it as a very frightening thing. How d- how did it um how did how did it start to be used as a method of execution in the United States? So it was first used in New York, um, as, as as I mentioned before. Um, electricity was seen to be um, um, really a I don't know the central modern invention. Uh, and there's a you know wonderful story about the way in which Thomas Edison and, and George Westinghouse, in a sense, competed uh, about the kind of electric current that might be used uh, for the electric chair. Edison did not want his form of current to be used, uh, so he uh, mounted a campaign, including conducting experiments at Menlo Park, to show that Westinghouse's form of um, electric current um, was dangerous for household use. Uh, Edison quite infamously used uh, Westinghouse's form of current to uh, electrocute an elephant and filmed it to show how potent uh, Westinghouse's form of current um, would be. In fact, uh, Westinghouse's form of current was the form of current that uh, New York um, New York adopted. And uh, after the uh, decision to use Westinghouse's form of current, West, uh, Edison said that uh, electrocution in New York shouldn't be called electrocution, it should be called uh, Westinghousing, so you would be Westinghouse <laughs> as opposed to uh, uh, electrocuted. New York decided to to um, use uh, um, death by electricity. The first person executed was named William Kemmler um, in 1890, and Kemmler's execution uh, Kemmler's execution uh, was botched. Um, it took several jolts of current uh, to get uh, to get him um, to die. Um, newspapers uh, widely uh, described Kemmler's execution as horrible, ghastly, bungled, and um, um, electrocution has been botched in several ways. Um, you know, the difficulty sustaining the uh, the current uh, long enough to do the job. One of the most famous botched executions in the United States um, was an electrocution. It happened in Louisiana in the 1940s. Um, the condemned was named Willie Francis. Francis was put in the electric chair. Uh, the so-called switch was thrown, but the voltage wasn't enough to kill him. And he was taken out of the electric chair and uh, put back on that state's death row. And um, in the interim, between the first failed uh, effort to um, execute him and the second scheduled effort to execute him, a case was uh, brought to court and ultimately reached the United States Supreme Court. Uh, the claim, Francis' claim, was that it would be cruel to put him in the chair the second time. Uh, the court disagreed with him and allowed the execution to go uh, to go forward. And uh, uh, 
by the by the middle of the 20th century, mid to late 20th century, there were also quite a number of uh, death by electrocution that resulted in inmates catching on fire. Um, these particularly gruesome deaths uh, propelled a challenge to uh, electrocution uh, that again was brought to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, the the challenge was to the use of electrocution in the state of Florida, where where several of these particularly gruesome botched executions occurred. And before the United States Supreme Court could hear the challenge to Florida's method of execution, uh, Florida uh, changed its method of execution uh, from death by electrocution to uh, uh, death by lethal uh, lethal injection. Mm-hmm. I see. So. You don't happen to know. I mean, I know a little bit about electricity. I've done some home repair and home renovation and things like that. You don't happen to know how electricity kills you. Um, I, I, I'm, my, my specialty is not physiology. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. I don't um, know. I mean, so the, I the, don't. I assume that the way in which uh, electricity kills you is it kills you by, in a sense, killing the, killing the brain. But mm-hmm. um, I, I wouldn't rely on my... Uh, my my expertise. I'm sure one of that. our listeners will have the answer to this question. Um, I know Absolutely. that the body is a very good conductor, being uh, predominantly made of water, uh, so uh, the, the current will flow through it very easily. Um, and when the current flows through it, that actually releases a lot of energy. And so I imagine it, it sort of boils things, uh, it raises their temperature very quickly. But I don't know. So let me. Yeah. Let me just uh, let me just uh, uh, maybe answer that question by by reading you a passage here. The the New York Commission that uh, adopted death by electrocution said the following, the velocity of the electric current is so great that the brain is paralyzed and is indeed dead before the nerves can communicate a sense of shock. Hmm. Well, yes, the brain is an electrochemical device. That's true. Uh, and I don't know. <laughs> I hope somebody. I hope somebody uh, responds with a good answer. Uh, maybe I'll ask a friend of mine who's an electrician. He might know. Um, you'd right. think you'd think electricians would know. <laughs> That's part of their training. Um, so, this uh, one of the things I found in your book that, that kind of amazed me is that uh, electrocution lasted quite a while as a method. Well, in fact, it's. Several states today retain electrocution as an alternative method if lethal injection uh, were found to be um, were found to be unconstitutional. And you may uh, this, in the state of the state of Tennessee has just uh, passed the legislation to bring back electrocution as an available method of execution in that um, um, in that state. And death by the electric chair, I think, is the iconic symbol of uh, of the death penalty in the United States. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right about that. I mean, there are uh, famous pictures about it, and, and you, you hear the horror stories which you just mentioned. Some of them are largely mythological. They certainly exist uh, prominently in the public mind. So I think you're right. Uh, electrocution is the sort of symbol of, of public execution in in the United or of, of execution in the United States. So, but let's move on to the gas chamber. I didn't even know we ever killed anybody with the gas chamber. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, uh, really, after World War One and uh, the use of lethal gas as a technology of uh, warfare, uh, some states, uh, and in here the leader was Nevada, 
thought uh, began to again investigate through legislative commission alternatives to hanging and concluded that lethal gas would be a safe, reliable, potent, and also humane um, uh, method of execution. And um, the, the gas chamber was developed and used first in Nevada. It became actually quite popular in uh, um, in in California as um, um, as well. There, the uh, problems in the use of the gas chamber resulted, uh, you know, you had to to uh, get the right mix of the lethal chemicals. You had to make sure that the um, lethal chemicals uh, dissolved in the in 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 the right way. You had to make sure that the the chamber was sealed um, so that the the uh, lethal gas would not uh, would not escape and. Um, executions were botched in a variety of ways, including the mix of the chemicals were wrong, or the uh, chemicals were dropped into the wrong substances, or the temperature in the death house wasn't uh, at the right level, so that the the chemicals didn't dissolve in the right um, in in um, in the in the right way. And um, uh, like like Florida's electric chair, by the by the end of its time, by the middle of the 20th century, actually, California's uh, gas chamber was really quite, um, was really quite notorious. And uh, again, death by um, lethal gas is, is hard to see, uh, hard to witness, because it, it does result in um, really death by asphyxiation. So uh, someone who is dying in the gas chamber is going to um, twitch and lunge and um, um, eyes bulge. It uh, was, was was never a pretty sight. Um, and how how long did uh, the use of this device go on? Uh, it went. You know, it was first used in Nevada in the 1920s. Uh, it went on really right right up into the uh, beginning of the 1990s. Hmm. And did it, I, I, I mean, I suppose it was given a bad name by uh, World War Two. Would that be fair to say? I think to some extent that is, I think to some extent that's right. But I think, um, uh, you know, by the time that it was, um, was last used in, in 19, actually in 1999, I, I think in a sense it had been discredited by its own, by its own, um, both successes and failures, I mean, by the ways in which it was botched, but also, as I said, even if it wasn't botched, it was a pretty gruesome thing to um, to witness. And, you know, with each of these technologies, um, what you have is you have, I would describe them as entrepreneurs, you know, people coming along and saying, I can, we can do it better. And um, lethal injection, the latest uh, technology of um, execution, uh, first adopted by the state of uh, Oklahoma in 1977, first used in Texas in 1982, you know, became the, the sanitized, medicalized, um, acceptable alternatives to both uh, electrocution and the gas chamber. Mm-hmm. So then let's move on to the current modern uh, technique for uh, uh, state-sanctioned killing, and that would be lethal injection. And I, and I have a a question about this that I'd like to ask before we talk about it, and I think it's one that many people will have who've ever had surgery 
um, and, and I've had it a couple of times, and uh, one of my best friends is also an anesthesiologist, and, and I know for a fact, because I've experienced that with a little bit of sodium pentothal and some fentanyl, uh, my friend or any anesthesiologist can put me so far under so fast that uh, I become absolutely insensate. So how is the case that any of these are botched? So, uh, first of all, lethal injection has the highest rate of being botched of any of the technologies. Over the course of the 20th century, from 1890 to 2010, 3% of American executions were botched. Lord, uh, have mercy. In the period uh, since it was first used, 7% of lethal injections have been have been botched. Um, it, here's, here's how lethal injections go wrong. So presumably your anesthesiologist in prescribing the, the figuring out what dosage he is going to use on you attends to your weight, your body mass index, mm-hmm. and calibrates quite carefully um, the amount of these substances that he or she is going to give you to put you under. Most state protocols do not require that. They, pres- they prescribe or identify a standard dosage oh, of the boy. chemicals that are going to be used. And, you know, inmates on death row vary in size and shape and physical well-being and body mass index. So it's quite easy to get the dosage uh, wrong. Second, unlike your anesthesiologist who is certified and trained, um, the American Medical Association doesn't want doctors involved with um, executions. And that means you have untrained personnel administering these drugs. Uh, and if anything at all goes wrong, you have people who are not particularly experienced at um, you know figuring out what to do next. Lethal injections can be botched as well because they, they can't find the vein. Um, you know, intravenous drug users, the veins collapse. So what looks like uh, you know it's an easy thing to put someone under, um, actually not so easy when you have. Um, relatively untrained personnel administering standard uh, dosages um, in, let's say, high-stress situations. I mean, the operating room is one, but it's not easy to put someone to death against their um, against their will, I think, either psychologically or in terms of the mechanics of doing so. Mm-hmm. I, I thought, and again, I say I thought because I don't know, I thought that there were doctors present, and I'm assuming from what you said that the doctors are there simply to pronounce the person dead is that correct they actually don't administer correct. the drugs they, yeah. they they're they're not supposed to administer the drugs and so why doesn't or participate in any way in other words they're not supposed to advise even and so i suppose the thing is that the the, the american medical association says you know first do no harm and we're not going to be in the business of killing people that's my understanding my word how do you like that um so the why is it the case that it's a one-size-fit-all sort of thing? Because it's legislatively dictated. The legislature sits down and says, okay, uh, here's what we want you to do. We want you to give this many cc's and this many cc's of that and this many cc's of the other thing, and that's it. And it's in the law, and that's the way you have to do it. Uh, I think that's I think that's right. Um, I can't give you a precise explanation yeah. of why it is that the state protocols uh, don't you know, precisely calibrate, but uh, they don't. And uh, this sort of standard dosage problem, uh, you know, is a problem. Look, my research ended in 2010, and that was before the most recent period yeah. of 
botched uh, lethal injection. We're, we're now in a period of almost human experimentation yeah. in the death penalty, uh, given the reluctance of European um, pharmaceutical companies to supply the lethal chemicals. You have states uh, relying on so-called compounding pharmacies for their drugs. You have states trying different um, combinations of drugs or using a single um, um, using using a single drug. That's enough to make anybody, even like a uh, pro death penalty person, against the death penalty. <laughs> That's just astounding. Well, the one size fits all thing is incredible. I didn't. Yeah. This is this is what goes back to what we were talking about earlier. So for a long time, the argument against the death penalty in the United States proceeded at the abstract moral level. Uh, you know, even the condemned has human dignity. They have human rights. The death penalty offends those that dignity, those rights. Today, more and more, the, the arguments about the death penalty are not abstract and they're not moral. People are actually looking at the machinery of death, mm-hmm. and they're seeing the way in which this machinery is unreliable. They're seeing the way in which mistakes are made. They're seeing the way in which the commitments that Americans share to due process and equal treatment under the law and to the avoidance of cruel punishment are quite regularly violated in the everyday practices of everyday practices of capital punishment, and botched executions are now one part of that story. Um, if you go back to the beginning of the 20th century, botched executions did not play a large role in the overall conversation about capital punishment. Um, they were treated in both law and popular culture as mere accidents. Uh, you know, equivalent of you see a automobile accident, you don't think we need to get rid of the automobile, you think we just need to, you know, better safety training or better guardrails or people should wear seat belts. And in but in popular culture that's the way they were treated. They were treated as mishaps, as misfortunes. Today, given the context that I mentioned earlier about doubts about capital punishment, the botched executions that we've witnessed um I think add one more significant weight tipping the scales against capital punishment in the United States. Mm-hmm. Well, one other question about the way in which lethal injection is currently administered, uh, because it does involve drugs. So fentanyl, for example, or a lot of opioids are Schedule One drugs. Uh, you have to have a medical license in order to get them and dispense them. So mm-hmm. are, are, there, are there simply exceptions made for the people who are using them here? Well, I think there there um, there are uh, there are exceptions. You even have in the state of Missouri, the state attorney general suggested that Missouri itself should manufacture the lethal um, uh, should manufacture the lethal the lethal drugs. And this anomaly that you um, that you identify. Uh, you see is, I think, actually critical to the problem of lethal injection. We want it medicalized, but the medical people don't yeah, want to touch it. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in a way, it, it, you, you could say, a, a proponent of, um, of, of capital punishment could say, you know, we can do this very well if we could just get the medical establishment on board with it. So this, this line, we can do it well if is what sustained capital punishment in the United States. It was said about electrocution, it was said about lethal gas, and your hypothetical, now you see it saying it again about um, lethal injection. The debate about capital punishment is not a debate about a hypothetical. And as we think about capital punishment, I hope my book contributes to this, what we want to do is to examine, not the death penalty that we might have, 
but the death penalty that we do have. And um, unlike your surgical example, I, I think there's an actual kind of ambivalence. I, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's accidental that the problems in lethal injection have occurred because while we have this constitutional commitment to the avoidance of cruel punishment, no American politician is going to get themselves reelected by talking about their sympathies for the condemned. Mm -hmm. So unlike the solicitude that is shown to you in an operating room, um, the situation of someone being executed is actually quite different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I I certainly would agree with that. Um, And I do imagine and fully uh, accept and appreciate that the, the moments before someone is uh, put to death are probably among the most stressful uh, anyone could possibly experience, and not only for the person about to kick the bucket. Uh, I'm sure everybody in there is not performing at 100%. Um, and that that is necessarily so, I think. I don't, there's no way around that. I uh, believe that is the case. Yeah, I mean, that that's just the way that is. So before we, before we uh, um, leave... Lethal injection. I wanted to just to have your take on the Clayton Lockett case. This has been in the news. Many people might have heard of it. it occurred in Oklahoma in April, I think, and uh, it was it was a, a botched execution like none I have ever heard of. Could you could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it was um, um, really particularly um, particularly horrific. Uh, again, they they had difficulty finding a vein, and this is not unusual. But it went on for a very long period of time. Uh, eventually, the vein they found was in his was in his groin, but it's not clear that they got the drug into the vein. Um, the, 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 it, it's probably the case that the vein went into the soft muscle tissue, and re- resulted in what really quite apparently seems to be uh, a great deal of agony on his part. The execution was stopped, and um, soon thereafter, Mr. Lockett died of a heart attack. And uh, at least at this point, it's still not known whether or not the heart attack was induced by the um, procedures or the drugs or was uh, merely, if I may say, coincident uh, to this botched execution. You know, it brings up kind of an interesting, I'm not a lawyer and I haven't studied the law, but it brings up an interesting possibility. And I don't see why the family wouldn't sue the state for what, what is it essentially allowing the guy to die in custody. So, uh, you see what I'm saying? Neither neither of us are licensed to practice law, and neither of us should imagine imagine litigation unless we get in trouble with the American Bar Association. Okay. All right. Um, Yeah, I don't want to... uh, I don't want to get on the wrong side of the American Bar Association, that's for certain. So let's move back to your uh, kind of good, good, I I think, and sensible statement about we we need to... I'm reminded of... uh, of, I can't remember who it was. I think it was Donald Rumsfeld. You go to war with the army you have. So you, you execute people with the methods of execution that you have. And that's what we should talk about and the way they perform. And what you're saying is, and I think you show, is that they don't perform very well in a certain percentage of the cases and that, and that this is beyond regrettable. It's inevitable. Um, th- there was one, there's one kind of execution which I, uh, that you didn't, that we haven't talked about yet. And that one could, I suppose, to some people, solve all the problems. And that's the firing squad. So, it's, hard uh, to bo- it's hard to botch a firing squad. Well, it's actually not hard to, to okay, botch a ahead. firing squad. They're, they're, uh, part of the reason we don't pay a lot of attention to it in the book, there were only 30 people executed, I think 34 people executed by the firing squad over mm-hmm. the course of the, um, the, course of the uh, 20th century. Um, the firing squad can be botched if someone moves. 
um, at, you know, the, at the last minute. Um, but there, you see, there are other values at stake in this uh, conversation about capital punishment, and and that is whether or not, and I mentioned this at the beginning of our conversation, whether or not we want to replicate the acts of those that we mm-hmm. condemn. And I must say, uh, the firing squad, I think, is too resonant, um, too much of a reminder of the gun violence that uh, throughout the last, especially the latter part of the 20th century, has marked American life. It's too much a reminder of a kind of frontier justice. So whatever its claims to... Um, um, efficiency and effectiveness, I, I, th- I think it really offends the sensibilities. Mm-hmm. And of course, then decapitation is out of the question, the guillotine. Americans are never going to go for that. Um, again, you're, 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 you're speculating, and I would say, no, Americans are never going to go for yeah. that. Even, even Albert Camus and his critique of the guillotine, he, of course, was an abolitionist, but he imagined and this is why I resisted your your your, your hypothetical. He imagined that uh, the guillotine should be replaced with another form of of of, of uh, execution, which he thought would be humane. And the one that he called for was death by lethal injection. Mm-hmm. It turns out that death by lethal injection in the United States from 1890 to 2010 is the form of method of execution which was most frequently botched. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So, after having done all of this research. Did you have any new insight or any new perspective that you would like to share about capital punishment and its prospects? What I guess what the way I often think of it is I I get my opinions from other smart people because I'm not that bright myself. So I, I you know I guess I'm asking what should a right thinking person think about capital punishment in 21st century America? So this is what I this is what I would say. Let me say two things. The book Gruesome Spectacles: Botched Executions, America's Death Penalty, is not motivated by a commitment to abolition. Yeah, that's that's clear in the book. I should say to everyone listening. Indeed, the first right. re- the first reviews of the book uh, quite uh, quite perceptively, at least from my point of view, noted the balanced treatment of these cases. So for every case in which we describe a botched execution, we describe in considerable detail the crime that brought that person to the death penalty um, itself. So it's not an abolitionist screed that we've um, written. It's a, it's a book of, uh, it's a historically rooted book. It's a book that we hope is and believe is responsible to the facts, the definition of botched executions that we've adopted is a kind of neutral one. It's not motivated by a set of abolitionist commitments. That being said, uh, I'm just going to repeat what I mentioned earlier, and that is I believe that we are on the road to abolition in the United States. Um, Abolition is going to come. It's going to come in a two-step forward, one-step back kind of way. It's not going to come dramatically. It's going to come state by state. We've seen it in Connecticut. We've seen it in New Jersey. We've seen it in New Mexico. We've seen it in Illinois. We've seen it in Maryland. We just missed seeing it in, uh, in New Hampshire. Indeed, even today, it's probably not accurate to say that America has the death penalty. America doesn't have the death penalty. Um, the South has the death penalty. Texas has the death penalty. Oklahoma, Missouri, Virginia, Florida has the death penalty. And even there, as I mentioned earlier, they've been significant declines. So I think in the lifetime of my children, uh, the death penalty will be gone from the United States. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let me present a false dichotomy, uh, knowingly present a false dichotomy. Will, will the end come through challenges 
and eventually a Supreme Court case that says that there, there is no non uh, cruel and unusual way, or will it come simply from the states deciding that that they're just that judges should no longer impose there should no longer be a death penalty? I don't think the death penalty will be abolished because the courts say there's no way to do it that isn't cruel in the way we were just describing it, in the way the terms of uh, the suffering of the condemned. Yeah. I don't think that's mm-hmm. the way it's going to come. I think the way it's going to come is it's going to come state by state. As as more and more states say, there's so many problems with the death penalty system, the costs are astronomical, and there's an alternative. It's called life without parole. Yeah. Eventually, after enough states do this, the United States Supreme Court may uh, step in and intervene and, in a sense, deliver the coup de grace to the American death penalty by saying that the death penalty is no longer consistent with the evolving standards of decency of a humane society, as the court did with respect to the execution of the mentally retarded and did with respect to the execution of yeah. juveniles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's very it's very interesting. I think in my own lifetime, and I'm sure in your lifetime as well, you've seen a, a shift in attitudes toward the the death penalty. I, I I I definitely, even in my own, I guess opinions, I've I've seen it. And uh, well, I won't tell you what I think, but <laughs> I I certainly don't want to see any more Clayton Lockett like cases, and I don't want them to be covered up either. So okay, yeah, I do not want them to be covered up, but I don't want to see any more of them. That's what I have to say about it. So um, today we've been talking. To uh, Austin Serrett about his book, Gruesome Spectacles, Botch Executions, and America's Death Penalty. He wrote the book with Catherine Blumstein, Audrey Jones, Heather Richard, and Madeline Sprung Kaiser. Um, we usually conclude all of our interviews, Austin, with a question about what you're working on now. So could you speak a little bit about your current project? Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a couple of things. One is I'm... Um actually looking at the, what I call the cultural life of capital punishment, examining uh, scenes of execution in American film over the course of the 20th century, examining the coverage of capital punishment in, um, in both mainstream and radical newspapers, and uh, examining what I call the rhetoric of uh, abolition. And I'm also uh, beginning a new project on an entirely different subject, namely examining um, uh, privacy and its fate in the contemporary um, United States. Uh, that project I call um, "Old uh, Old Values, New Realities: uh, Privacy and Its Fate in the United States." Yeah, well, I wish you luck with those projects, and when Thank they come you. out, we would absolutely love to have you back on the show. Thanks so much. The, th- thanks so much for the very thoughtful uh, interview and the opportunity to talk about the project. Absolutely. Thank you, Austin. And let me say thank you to everybody who listens to this podcast. My name is Marshall Poe, and I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I hope that you tune in next week and that you have a great week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.